I'm really excited about today's episode because we have acclaimed filmmaker Andy Timoner. Now, Andy's definitely a filmmaker whose work I've admired for a long time, ever since I first watched the 2004 documentary Dig about the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And she followed those two bands for seven years to make this incredible documentary, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2004 and has been selected by the Museum of Modern Art for their permanent collection. Um, she went on to make the 2009 film We Live in Public, which also won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance the year it came out. She's also known for films like the scripted film Maplethorpe, which came out in 2018, Brand, A Second Coming, which is a documentary about Russell Brand, uh, 2022's Last Flight Home, which we spoke at great length about, uh, which is a very personal film centered on her father, and her recent film, The New Americans, Gaming a Revolution, which just premiered at South by Southwest less than a couple of months ago. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Zap. I just put my phone on mute because I don't know if you heard, I have peacocks in the background. Um, <laughs> That's a first for but, the podcast, uh, I will say. Yeah, I live in Altadena, California, where the peacocks roam. They've decided this is their home. That's pretty cool. And uh, some bears as well. But it's a, it is a, I, we consider it a perk. Bears as well. Are they ferocious ones or? I suppose that they're upset, but the one that we had in our swimming pool just bathed and then took off. So he did, or she scaled the fence and knocked down. But yeah, I don't think they're generally not violent animals unless provoked. Yeah, I was in Vermont this past weekend and somebody was talking about that. He was like, just stay away if you see the cubs, then the mama bear attack but other than that you're okay exactly i think that's the key that's the key but somebody was just on our next door was saying that there was a bear flashing around and cannonballed into the swimming pool last night so (laughs) wild (laughs) yeah so you recently premiered your film the new americans at south by southwest is that right yeah congratulations thank you yeah a lot of fun i love south by yeah, I haven't. I haven't been, but hope to make it there someday. Yeah, it's a very, it's just a, a really great South by. It comes a couple months after Sundance, and it's a warmer climate, and it's such a great mix of like tech and internet. That's pretty cool. I did get a chance to. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a populist festival than than Sundance, which is more film focused and freezing. <laughs> so in terms of being a premier festival, it's really quite a great festival. It's, Sun- it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Sundance I've been to a number of times. I've actually seen you at Sundance, although I didn't bother you. So I, even though I know who you are, I didn't get into your you didn't personal. Say hi. I didn't say hi because I didn't want to bother you. I'm not the type to bother somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can feel free to next time. I'm a pretty open person. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, happy to be bothered. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah, love so the I New mean, Americans. You know, tell us, tell I guess oh, the audience you. who's not familiar with the film. I'll tell you, I loved it because it was. I found it to be very informative as well as entertaining to watch. I thought it was enjoyable to watch, but it was also really informative and kind of really interesting. Yeah, I think the idea for me was that there had been some films that on the topic of the GameStop squeeze and that, that they didn't capture the energy or the spirit that drives all of this and that there really needed to be a film that told the story of this era where I think what, for me, what's happened is a culmin- it's a culmination of just a lot of People are pissed since 2008, 2009. There's just a lack of trust in the government and 
Wall Street and sort of the pillars of our democracy. And now with the internet, it felt also like I needed to update We Live in Public, which really told the story of what the internet was going to do to our lives on a personal level, on a privacy and intimacy level in 2009. When that came out, it was a prophecy that now has come true with social media and the way that everyone goes for their 15 minutes of fame and everything is in public. And and so this was like, it's time for another film about technology's impact on our lives, specifically the internet, because with discords and with online forums, there is this incredible democratizing opportunity to create a hive mind, to take people with different disciplines and bring them together. And in that, they become more powerful than any single brain. But there's the machine and there's the system and there's still the opportunity for great inequality and exploitation of the masses. And there's also the opportunity when there is rapid speed access to information for there to be misinformation that spreads equally quickly as we know and as we're seeing. And also to motivate masses of people to do crazy things like storm the Capitol. And I realized that there was, there was really the meme is a very, is a very powerful mode of communication and it's existed since cave writing. But now if you can wrap the discontent that people have and their feelings of just powerlessness and disenfranchisement into a humorous meme, it can, you know, and it can take, it can motivate people to really jump in on something that might not be something they would do logically, right? Or on their own or like with a book on their knee. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so there's the mob that forms. So there's a hive mind on one side and a negative side. There's the mob that can form. And just looking at the fact that the GameStop squeeze happened just two weeks, three weeks to the day, three weeks to the day after the insurrection, it seemed to me that there was, there was a story there. There might be a connection, not just there are actual overlapping players, but not to say that everybody who was part of the GameStop squeeze had anything to do with the insurrection, but it's the same forces at work in terms of on an anthropological level. And I think that's important that we understand that as we're standing on the brink of total digital transformation. Yeah. I we're like, all like looking at AI and we're looking at what is going to happen now. And there's, this is an important part of that conversation. I felt like so. Very. And I liked how you had an eclectic group of, subjects between people like Jordan Belfort and Shepard Barry and yeah, the positive and the negative side. And not that Jordan represents just the negative side, but he represents, he is someone who famously the Wolf of Wall Street managed to defraud a lot of people of a lot of money and get away with a lot. So he wasn't able to anymore. And in that time, and then now he's like a legit supposedly and seems like a nice guy but uh, he's really deep in crypto and he's a tiktok star in his own way and he's really a relevant public speaker and his commentary i think is really poignant and actually some of the best commentary in the film about looking at the self-proclaimed apes behind the disruption of wall street and the idea of like diamond hands and holding and all that kind of stuff it's really funny. I think it's a really funny moment when he says, don't stoop it. Hold it. you got to sell it. The stock accrues value. He's like the voice of reason in a film that has some really interesting characters. And I was just really, sometimes I look at what I do as a job and I'm just like, wow, I have such a great job as a filmmaker to be able to be talking directly with some of these people who, have dedicated their lives to this and they're giving me like their all. And I feel like the movie has that. It has this sort of front row seat energy where you're just like, let's peek, let's peek behind the curtain and see what's really happening. Yeah, that's what exactly really how happening? I felt. And I thought you got a raw candid interview, even with Scaramucci as well. 
Oh yeah. yeah. He yeah. showed up at South by, he came to the premiere. Oh wow. Scaramucci. And yeah. so did Raul Paul. Yeah. Who's amazing in the film. But yeah, Scaramucci, he was just no holds barred. You know, and what you may not know, or you probably do because you've seen it, but Scaramucci runs and founded Skybridge Capital, which is a hedge fund dedicated to crypto and Bitcoin. He is a full on believer in all of that alternative currency and operating in, in that system. And that's a really important system. So he, that's why we went to see him. But the Trump connection was really important, too, regarding the insurrection and regarding looking at the choices that he made. And he was he definitely didn't shy away from that conversation, which I was glad, you know, that he I think the world of him, he was really great yeah, to yeah. work with. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the crypto thing is wild. And I like how you went into Dogecoin. I have, I know a guy in this guy, he used to work for me on film sets, on indie films as a sound guy. And this was, and quite frankly, he was a really nice guy, but a lower tier sort of sound guy. Like he didn't have a lot of gear, would charge like 125 bucks a day sort of thing, eight, nine years ago. But all those $125 a day that he was making running sound on indie films he was buying was in crypto. yeah he was putting in dogecoin the month that came out so now he's like a deck of millionaire i went to his birthday party last year and he's like the nicest guy so if you know him you're it's like one of these people you're so happy for because you're like like fucking a i'm glad that you made it in life mike because i don't know yeah. it's like a story of the underdog just like That's crushing people, it. exactly and that is the story right that's the story that everybody loves and that we all want to see him, you know, and that is so attractive about all of this is, hey, you know what? You don't have to, you don't have to have that Harvard MBA to, to make it. You don't have to have gone to Yale and joined a secret society to <laughs> right. send the kids to college. Yeah. Buy some of the Dogecoin and fuck the system. You know what I mean? And you can, you can rule also as that rocket ship to the moon. The, the problem is that as I think several people in the film would agree. There's no shortcuts unless you're really lucky. It's yeah. sort of like gambling. Not everybody could get into a coin like, that it's going to go 10,000 X. Yeah. And, and I throw the Doge. He invested in Dogecoin and he held on to Dogecoin and his whole life is this. Like he's really taken a stand and he's like working for Doge credit cards. I don't know if you saw the end slate. Yeah. And it's been the ride of his life, but he held and he lost a ton of that value like his mom was worried about. He wasn't like Mike, your sound guy. He got out. And that's what Jordan Belfort was saying. He's got to know when to fold him. Yeah. No one to hold him and no one to fold him. Just like uh, the so, Kenny Rogers song. Exactly. Uh. I know. I didn't interview Kenny for this. <laughs> that would have been funny, though. That would have been a funny moment. That's the thing about this film that I love is just the way that the experience of watching it is just so much fun. And that's something that I think is part, maybe what I'm most proud of is just the amount of information we managed to relay in the way that we relay it, because it's so funny. It's such a funny movie and the movie has a language of its own. And it was early on that I realized, oh my God, I want to tell this whole story through memes. I loved it. And I loved that style they did in the visual style and the cutting. And Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it almost killed me editing the film, but uh, I was going to ask and, uh, that. So that's Gordon. Yeah, yeah, that's a question. He and I cut the film together, um, so, and then my brother stepped in on the crypto part because my brother is like your friend Mike. He made a killing on crypto nice. and managed to get a house, even though he's like a great editor in his own right. Working a day job, no matter what, isn't quite like buying a crypto that triples in value overnight. So that's what happened with my brother, David. And then we all followed him in and then we all lost. We got in too late, but my brother, he scored. So I'm like David, my brother who founded the company with me, Interloper Films. Nice. I said, David, you need to help me with this crypto part because you understand it better than I do. So he jumped in and did the first passes on the crypto part. And then this guy, Jesse Gordon, who's wonderful. He did a lot of the bells and whistles. And then I did a lot of the actual intense story stuff because the story is so complex. The actual narrative of the film is really intense. I think it was probably the most intense and difficult film to make on that level for me. And there was no way to really get any other editor to figure it out because it was just too 
it's just, just so many. Yeah, it's the one criticism the film has gotten is that it's so much information. There's just so much crammed into that a feature length film. But well, I the, think it's. I, I think, think that's that okay because it rewards biggest. repeat watchability. And also, first of all, it's really fun and fast moving, and so's the internet. By the way, I want something to feel like what it is. And so, yeah. on my movies, I try to make them as visceral as possible. And so. You do, for me, yeah. It's, the film has to feel like that. If you're overwhelmed, then great. Good for you. Cause, good for me, because <laughs> that's what this is. It's overwhelming. Totally overwhelming. I like how you say that, because I re-watched your movie Dig before talking to you, and that was the first movie that I was exposed to, your work. That's how I learned about you and your work. And a, a couple of years after it came out, I first watched it on DVD and it blew me away. Honestly, it was, Thank you. I really love that documentary and oh, it's coming up on the 20th anniversary. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Next year. That's wild. So we're going to, we're going through, we're putting the five hour cut online. Um, that is and, awesome. Uh, and we're going to see what from that we're going to share. It'll probably be like a 45 minute of new footage incorporated into the film and remastered and everything. So I guess to give audiences some context that are unfamiliar, it chronicles two bands, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown massacre. Did I say that right? I, I did, right? Yep. Brian Jonestown massacre and the Dandy Warhol. And you followed and them for seven like years. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I started with 10 bands. I was wanting to look at the collision of art and commerce and what would happen to the artist and how an artist can maintain their integrity while reaching a mass audience, if that's even possible. Because I myself had made a film about a woman in prison in Connecticut, and I was very anxious to tell her story and get her out of prison. And back then, nobody really watched documentaries. So I got some offers from PBS, and I thought, oh, I need to turn it into a TV movie to get millions of people to write letters to get this innocent woman out of prison and the process was just not just lacked integrity it was actually threatening her the integrity of her story and here she is a woman behind bars and trusting me with her story and I'm 21 years old trying to navigate Hollywood so I just turned I just used my camera to answer the questions I had about whether or not it would be possible to have my own to have my own career where I was able to make the films I wanted to make and reach people without changing a bunch of things and making it more sensationalized and all that. And the answer came with Dig itself because at first we made a deal around TV. It was going to be a TV series. And they were like, oh, too many cigarettes, too many curse words. So we didn't go with MTV and we went the independent film route and no one would give us money because nobody had heard of those bands. It wasn't about the bands. It was really about their attitudes and their relationship. And it's Amadeus or the real Final Tap or something. It's like the real, it's like an unbelievably star-crossed friendship turned bitter rivalry between these two lead singers. Each possesses what the other one wants. Anton rides this edge and makes record after record for $10 a pop. And they're brilliant and they're genius. And he's happy to live hand to mouth while doing it. And, Courtney and his band, the Dandy Warhols, prefer to have more comfort and stability and sign a record deal and bear the consequences of that route. And you get to see it all over time, as well as their crazy relationship, which I could never have written. If I had written it, people would have thought I made it up. So, I know. I was thinking about um, that. Like You struck gold because you really captured something that was pretty remarkable that it's, yeah. it's just incredible. Just the narrative that naturally unfolded kind of. Yeah. Um, and I was like naive and wanted to create something that brought suspense driven narrative back or into documentary. Because my theory was people aren't watching documentaries because they think they're boring, like eating spinach or reading a history book and that they're too educational to be entertaining. So my theory was, and now this is not a problem because the whole field has caught up to this, but back then it was not really done where you followed something unfolding over time. But I thought, let me follow these stories over time, whatever happens. And then I can, in the edit bay, recreate the sort of the journey that we took using the most exciting moments almost. And then that will allow people to go on this 
journey too. And it'll make for a more of a narrative film out of real footage. And I, the only person I know of who was doing that at the time was Steve James of Hoop Dreams. Oh. And, and yeah, I didn't know him personally, but, or the movie, but I, but he and I were on parallel paths following things over time. Yeah. Michael Apted was doing that too. Right, with the 7-Up seven seven series, yeah. yeah. But a little, diff- but nobody, but a little really different. But nobody yeah. else. Yeah. It was just not a PBS film. Right, I was exactly. just following it over time. PBS now does interesting work, but that's how I thought of it. It was like, if you were in documentaries in the mid-90s, that's where you would go for your funding. And that's the kind of movie you'd make, is there'd be a narrator, and they'd look back, and there'd be, it'd be a retrospective. Yeah. And I just wanted to make something totally radically different. And so that's how Dig was for. But the naive Jay comes in, and that I filmed 2,500 hours of footage. So I filmed like everything wow. for the first few years. Holy and shit. then, yeah, and then I realized I'd be editing like basically forever. Yeah. So I was editing for the next four years. And so I just kept following the story as I was editing, like shooting less, but shooting moments that I, in my gut, felt like, oh, this is going to be important. Like that final scene with Anton in the knitting factory, like when he kicks the guy in the head. Like I just had a feeling based upon what I heard about his tour that I should go to that show. Yeah. And I was by then already pregnant with my son and really wanting to finish the film and needing to finish the film before I became a mother. And it was like the last place I wanted to go was the knitting factory night in LA, but I just kind of knew I needed to go there. And so that's why it's shot over seven years because I was editing for four of <laughs> That makes sense, yeah. though, especially with and that kind of footage. We live in public. The one I referred to earlier was actually 5,000 hours of footage. Wow. Shot over 10 years. No way. And that one is, both are like, both won Sundance by unanimous jury and both are in the Museum of Modern Art's permanent collection. And I feel like they're both, there's a reason for that. And it's because they're shot over time. It's because they're extraordinary because you get to really go on a journey that's real. And that's why, like, a really crazy journey that only the twists and turns of, like, life itself can provide. Said. Yeah. And it seems that... So it's interesting, by the way, that you follow 10 bands at first. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, that's, and then I landed on these two. Yeah, yeah I, I landed on the Brian Jonestown at a friend's house. I heard the music of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, and I really liked it. But I thought it was a band from the 60s that I'd missed. Gotcha, and then gotcha. people were like, oh, no, my friend Denise was like, oh, no, they're alive and well. They're in San Francisco. And I was going up there to film, not film, but to be with my sister and her, like, celebration of love ceremony in 1996 with her then partner. And this is pre-gay marriage, even. And we were going to Golden Gate Park. And I was going up there that very next day or the day after. And I was like, oh, wow, they're in San Francisco. Let me get in touch with them. So I got in touch with Anton, and that's that first shot you see in the movie where he says, hey, nice to meet you, and it's his birthday. It's oh, August 29th, yeah, 1996. Yeah. I guess I was his birthday present. Yeah. So, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that and that was a cool shot. Yeah, it was just like they had shown up late to play the gig, and so the club wasn't going to let them play, and they were going to play on the sidewalk, and then they ended up at the at David Dorovinsky's apartment and the neighbor came over and yelled at them and it was amazing from day one. It was like crazy from day one. I um, actually, I liked how the fourth wall was broken at times and then they call you by name and like you're in a couple of the shots and a couple of the scenes like <laughs> hanging out. I, I like those moments actually. <laughs> it was our 20s. It was literally a dec- like pretty much a decade of my life. It, thank, I, when I won Sundance, I thanked my 11 week old son Juki for the deadline I couldn't push. That's he had amazing. been carried out by one of our parties because he just started to complain and was disrupting the award ceremony slightly. So he didn't <laughs> get to hear that directly. But that was like, I don't know if I became, if I didn't get pregnant, I don't know if I would have finished the film when I did because I was like, I had a five-hour cut, like I said, but I felt like I couldn't cut anything from it. I come from yeah. an editing background, so that was going to be one of my questions. And I'm... Although I love documentary, I'm traditionally a narrative guy in terms of myself being a filmmaker. But, nice. But narratives, narratives are, it's maybe, they're a different challenge during production, but perhaps easier to edit than documentaries yeah. is my impression. I agree. So w- I've wh- cut both. Yeah. Um, what's- I made Maple Thorpe director's cut, which is 
starring Matt Smith, and we shot in 19 days, and that was not easy. But the edit, I would say, was easier. I did it, cut it in nine weeks with John Allen, both of us working. And in full disclosure, and, I'm familiar with Maplethorpe, but haven't actually watched it. I know that's uh, some of your narrative. It's a narrative film that you made, which is a biopic about the artist. Yes. Yeah. And Matt Smith, you know who he is, yeah? House of Dragon. Yeah. Crown. Classmate in Soho. He's been a fantastic actor, but yeah, yeah, I would like English, to think this British is actor, greatest right? for, Yeah, Doctor Who. I would think that this is, I think this, and many people have said that this is his best performance. So check it out. Definitely going to check but it out. But check out the director's cut. Okay. So that's the cool. actual original version that was going to play Sundance, and then it got a little bit censored and re-edited. And that's the cut. That's the the official version is not my version. Yeah, gotcha. So, a little Blade Runner yeah. type of situation going on there. There we go. Nothing like a little drama on your first scripted film. Yeah. Do you so have 12 years in the making? I mean, I wrote 58 drafts of it and developed it for 12 years. I was just also really grateful that I got to get it done and get it out there. Yeah. But it was a little bit heartbreaking there at the end when I couldn't play Sundance. But do you have do you have a desire to continue to make more narrative work as well? Yeah, actually, Last Flight Home, the documentary about my father and the last weeks of his life that just made the rounds. I don't know if you've seen it. I did see it. It was very powerful, and I'm definitely going to get to that, yeah. Yeah, so that film was never going to be a doc. That was a scripted film always that that I had written, and those are the pages on his bed. Is You can see... Those pages of the script. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. And for audiences that aren't familiar with it, Last Flight Home is your, it, it came out in 2022, it came out last year, is that right? Or the year before? It came out in, yeah, it came out in 2022. Very powerful was, film, uh, the story of your father, Eli Timoner. And it yeah. was a very personal film. Was that? I can imagine that, was that, your hardest film to make? Actually, no. I would say The New Americans might have been my hardest film to make in terms of the edit because it was so complex. Right. And there were thousands and thousands of pieces of archival. Last Flight Home was the most powerful example of what filmmaking could do for me in my life, like what filmmaking could do for others. Like all of it, it's just the most powerful thing I've ever created or been a part of. And and I don't imagine that anything will ever top it in that way because I don't think most artists ever get the chance to be part of something that powerful. First of all, I didn't know I was making a film. I was determined to make sure that my father, every last word was documented. And I thought that might be actually inappropriate. So I asked the therapist <laughs> what she thought. And she thought that, yeah, I thought she would say it's a really bad idea, but she said, if you think you should film. So then I asked my father and he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. He was in the hospital at the time. And I said, dad, when you come home to start hospice, I just feel like I need to set up cameras. What do you think of that? And he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. So that was, I had his support, which was great, but I still like my family, they all thought I was just documenting i did too for our family not necessarily to share with everybody and yeah. but it became something that was so profound it's like the most profound and beautiful experience of my life those weeks those last weeks of dad's life and he was the greatest leading man a filmmaker could ever have like literally the funniest kindest smartest just most graceful person and really I can't imagine. I, I just never thought I'd make a doc because I only had the amount of archival in the film, which was like 15, 20 minutes, about his airline and everything. So I never thought, oh, I could make a documentary. But it was a really touching tribute to him, for sure. Yeah, it was like a memorial. My sister asked me to cut five, ten minutes of the footage together for his Zoom memorial a few weeks later. And I couldn't stop cutting. And I, it was a 32-minute memorial video. Because Dad was like alive inside the Avid. And I was just in shock at how much we actually captured and now he was where he wanted to be and I could just calmly sit and be with him it was just the most it was a miracle like what filmmaking did for me 
how it helped me to feel safe. It actually connected me more into the space even because I wasn't scared to forget when he had that stroke when I was nine. I'm assu- you say you have seen it. So yeah, I saw the whole, yeah. He has a stroke. His neck is cracked when I'm nine years old. And I can't remember him able-bodied from before that time. Wow. So it's, it was terrifying to me to forget anything that came out of his mouth. So as soon as I set up cameras, I felt safe. And then when the footage, when I started looking at the footage, I was like, oh my God, dad's alive in the avid. And he, and I started seeing things and hearing things that happened in that room. My sister and rituals that she led us through or things that she did or things that my dad said to friends who visited that were just really incredibly profound. And I knew it at the time, but the same therapist said, you will be in shock. You will you're all going to be in shock through this whole period of time. And I think she was right because what I saw in the footage, I was through the objective eyes of the camera. And what I heard was just revelatory to me in some ways. And it, it was like, as a filmmaker, as I went from like grieving daughter to filmmaker, it had just such a load of incredible scenes, right? Like where people come yeah. in and they are transformed by the experience. And that's what you want as a filmmaker, right? You're looking for arcs and character arcs and people to go through something, characters to go through something. It's no problem because it didn't matter how long anybody spent in that room, they weren't the same when they left it. That's and the true. most important arc was my dad. Yeah. You know, him realizing that he had given us what us trying to figure out how we had a matter of weeks to, to show him that he gave us everything when he thought he gave us nothing and he thought he was a burden and we had to show him like, no, you taught us everything. Like you showed us what it is to be a great human and you provided us with unconditional love and these things that he just didn't even factor in. And thank God he comes to realize by the end, just in time that he was all that. He did all that for us. That's amazing. I thought, yeah. So for me, there was a part where, he was talking about some regrets he had and particularly with somebody they had done business with in the past and how that went down. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is one of the most, I've never really seen that. It's, it's thoughts that somebody might have and think about, but you don't but really see that. They would never say yeah, it. Exactly. And I thought that was so good and really powerful. And thank you. Yeah. What's, you know, that's why I had to share it because I felt like so many of us, all of us, go around in our lives shame, shame, being ashamed of certain things that we've done or feeling even like embarrassed about certain things. I'm sure everybody like was like, oh, thing, yeah. like that was cringe. Why did I do that? Like at that moment. Exactly. We're sweating all this stuff could be losing money. It could be saying the wrong thing. None of that matters. You know what I mean? It matters who you are to the people that you love and who you are. As my dad says, respect those you don't know and love the ones you do. It matters how you conduct yourself on this earth. That's what matters. And I think it's just, to me, the film became like as much about how to live as how to die. And it felt like I have to share that it would be wrong for me as a filmmaker, I've always tried to learn and then share what I learned. That's my process, and that's why I love filmmaking. Is And I think that's everybody's process, many people's process who make yeah. documentaries, at least, is it's a holistic process. It's a cycle. You, you learn with the camera. For me, the camera is a bridge into worlds I could never otherwise enter, like Anthony Scaramucci's office. I wouldn't be there that day. Right. Here I am, deep in a conversation with Anthony Scaramucci, like learning from him, learning from Jordan Belfort. And you can learning from even a couple of the white collar criminals in the film. Yeah, just yeah. learning, just getting to talk to different people has always been such a, an amazing gift of being a filmmaker. But then you get to share it. Then you distill it down. And if, you're, if you do a good enough job, you actually get to share it with audiences and hopefully affect people's lives. And this film, I tested it as a secret screening in Birmingham, Alabama at the Sidewalk Film Festival, which is a great festival if you haven't heard of it. No, I haven't, but I'll... Oh, actually, you know, I have heard about it, actually. Yeah. But I never attended it or anything like that, but I would check it out. So the woman who runs it, she, Rachel Morgan, the director, she reached out. She said, do you have anything this year? Because I I won the festival with Maplethorpe, and I've had a few films, actually. My film, Join Us, about the cults. 
about mind control, also one there. And so she reaches out periodically, I'm like, what do you have? What do you got? And, and I said, I might have a short film about my father. And then, a, <laughs> and then as I told you, I couldn't stop editing and it became a feature. And I was like, a couple months later, I'm like, but actually Rachel, it's a feature, but it's super rough. And I don't know if it should be a film. I don't know if it's too personal to be a film. Could I test it there? Could I do a secret screening? Like nobody would know it was me and nobody and no title and nothing attached to it. Just play it for a theater full of people. Would you be down for that? She said, absolutely. So we did a secret screening on a Saturday afternoon in Birmingham, Alabama. And the, at first it just felt, oh my God, my partner said to me, this is really, this is not a good idea. And I'm like, at least it's in Birmingham and we can leave it here. It felt like I was sharing my bat mitzvah video or something. <laughs> yeah. And then there was like a standing ovation afterwards. And then these boys stood up in the back, like young men, like 20, 25 years old. And they said, thank you. Now we have a man we can emulate. Like we have a role model. Like we've never had a man that we felt like we wanted to be like. Wow. Each of them expressed it in a different way. Yeah. And I thought, I got to go home and finish this immediately because this is, if for nothing else, that's a great reason to release this film. And so I went home and finished it for Sundance. It has just come flying out of me so fast. I didn't know what, I, it was almost involuntary. I just knew what to do though. It was almost like all my 30 years of being a filmmaker just all led me to this one moment. I could never have made this film and would never have made this film had I not been a filmmaker for so long yeah. and making verite films. Cause like it would just, I don't know how you could, I certainly could have made it when I made Dick. Right, I would never right. have been able to make it. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, and then I, the I experience of sharing it has been, the experience of sharing it has been like the greatest experience as an artist. I think it's like a dream to impact people and help people, at least for me to help people in any way. This is just the, the, the letters, the love letters we get as a family almost every day for sharing this is just, it's just unbelievable. It's helping people all, all over the place. Families are reuniting, like on deep levels, because there's just not many representations of death, certainly not good death, um, yeah. and peaceful death, and a family coming together. But yet we all die, and we all lose our loved ones. So everybody needs more of this kind of, work out there and totally. so yeah sharing it has been this unbelievable experience i'm really grateful to our distributor mtv documentary films too who really went out there and like just put up hundreds of screenings we've shared it with audiences so many people have gotten to have this sort of cathartic experience of watching this together crying and laughing together and they do laugh a lot because dad's hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, we're screening humor. coming up. We're doing an impact campaign now because the work isn't done. We've got to get this case of human right for to die with dignity and to have medical aid dying for terminally ill people everywhere. And right now it only exists in 10 states. I didn't even know the law existed. That's how little I think people talk about, think about how much the press writes about death at all in here in California. We have that. We saw that in the movie. Yeah. Saw dad had that. And it was like wind in his sails. Like he was so down and out before he, we just, my brother discovered that there was that law. And at the beginning of the film, he's just pleading with me to die, like for me to kill him, not for him. He didn't know there was a law. And it was so great, so empowering for him to have that agency. And in the process of screening it everywhere, people have come up to us and just been like, this is, like, this is what I wanted for my mother. This is what my mother begged me for when she was dying of liver cancer. And all these people were like, oh, my God, we need this right in Florida. We need this in New York City where you don't have the right. In New York State, you don't have the right. Yeah. I just thought abortion's one thing where there's like an embryo and the debate about life involved. This is not, this is a person and their own body. And the government should not be between those things. And I literally think it's because certainly religion, but also just a lack of discussion about it. So we're doing this impact campaign and we're starting now and we're starting to set up screenings and we're starting with Neuhaus in LA on May 10th and then Neuhaus in New York. I'll be there actually May 15th if you want to come down. Cool. And then we're doing in Vegas because that's the next state that's going to turn. It looks like we're working with an organization called Compassion and Choices 
She's like the Planned Parenthood of this basic cause, of this cause. And the, this cause is for people that really can't represent out there in the world because they're sick or they're, they're terminally ill and or they're elderly and they're, they're all terminally ill. In general, elder rights are an issue because nobody's really... It's just not a sexy subject. I know that's another, I think it's an important, such an important subject because I was talking about this on the podcast with Tom DeCillo that unfortunately we live in a society where we just don't respect the elderly like we should, especially like other cultures do. Exactly. Like we love our babies because they're so cute. But then when we become helpless later in life and believe me, it's going to be more and more of us because medicine keeps us alive that much longer there's no one nobody wants to take care of them because they're not cute anymore although i think my dad is pretty adorable i have to say but (laughs) but uh, no for sure yeah it's not a subject they get shelved away they get put in nursing homes and nobody goes to see them and it's just i'm generalizing of course no of course a lot of work to be done in this area so i'm actually making a film now inside the only hospice for the homeless that does recuperative t- care in the country. And so this journey with Last Flight Home has led me into another space between life and death because it's such a fascinating and important space, I think. And it's such a beautiful space, Jeff. Like, you, you'd be surprised. Like, everything that's important in life rises to the surface and nothing else matters, you know? And so I think about that a lot, I go, Andy, for sure. Yeah. Like, when I go to this hospice, it's called the in-between, I-N, like in-between, but it's an inn, and I go and spend time there. I don't even want to leave. It's just like the happiest place on earth in a lot of ways because people are being cared for, and the compassion goes both ways. It feeds the people who are giving the care and that are visiting and volunteering, and it feeds the people who have been forsaken by society, and now they're getting to be treated in a beautiful way, and their spirits are high, and they're like, it just gives you hope. Their hope and dignity is back. So you're meeting homeless people with such dignity. And I think it will help really in reducing the stigma, understanding homelessness better. But also, again, if, if people are right now, as we speak, I was telling you, I was shooting, I'm shooting remote right now in Salt Lake with a man who's dying in the next few days. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. But and a death doula who came in there as a resident, came in there because she needed help and they saved her life. And she became, she ended up working there and getting trained as a death doula. Yeah. How is that shooting remotely for you? How do you find that? I mean, I wish I was there. I have been there a bunch, but for when somebody just who's on hospice starts to die, it, yeah, I can't, yeah, no, sometimes yeah. I can't be there. Yeah, it's you. my mom's 85th birthday on Wednesday. And so we're throwing a big thing for my mom and a big screening of Last Flight Home. At oh, that's class. Nice. You know, my mom watched. That's another thing about that film. Like my mom watched it maybe every day after my dad died for a year and a half. Wow. And now it's like a few times a week. So maybe 550 times now. That's amazing. And it kept her alive, she says. And it's just like, it's just never have I seen the power of film like that. And I didn't really understand its full potential for making that film. So I, I hope my, my, my future films will be that powerful, but I doubt they can be. <laughs> when did you first get this? When did you first get the spark to make documentaries? Oh, I was a college kid in New Haven, Connecticut, and I was Yale. I was at Yale, and I was like tired of writing papers, and I don't know what caused me exactly to ask for a consumer video camera for the holidays but I asked my parents for a camera and I got this eight millimeter little video camera and regular eight it wasn't even high eight and my brother and my roommate and I set off across the country and I started interviewing people in toll booths and convenience stores I just asked them three questions what makes you happy what do you fear the most and what do you think of gays in the military and because uh, that was like a whole thing back then and that at that particular time. And I found that going, going into convenient, like I'd never, buying a can of soda was never so entertaining as it was with a camera in my hand. Because <laughs> I asked people questions and they would answer it and they would literally get into these debates like in the convenience store and they felt seen and they felt like their voice mattered. And that was like a whole, and I was just like, 
getting to connect with people. And the movie, I went back and there was a public access station in New Haven. Yale had no production facilities at that time, but there was a public access station. And I went to the meeting with my brother and we learned how to edit, he and I, together. We're self-taught, which I think is why the style of my work is what it is, because it's just very much, the inspiration for me has always come from the content, like the form of it like I said, needs to follow the content. So I try to make things feel like what they are. I didn't study other filmmakers and look around me to say, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna take a little bit of this person and a little bit of that. It's yeah, like yeah. completely it's totally authentic. from the subject matter. Yeah. So anyway, but we went to this public access station and we signed up for the, these shuttle editing systems. And, uh, and this one guy, I said, what do you fear the most? This guy in the convenience store and he said, women with video cameras. So my first film <laughs> was called 3,000 Miles and a Woman with a Video Camera, which we made for, like, public access. And then by my senior year, that was my, I was my junior year, my senior year, I would only take classes with a teacher. The professor let me make a, a film instead of write a paper. So that's I, kind of how that I, I always did that, too. Whenever there was a presentation, I always opted for the video, if we ever had the option, even when I was, like, in junior high school and stuff. Yeah, I didn't. I think it was funny because it was like they didn't really care if I took their class, but I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm only going to take your class if I can. (laughs) (laughs) And then they would let, and then so this woman, Franny Noodleman, said, yeah, you can make a film instead of write a paper. So I took this class called Transgressive Women in American Culture. And it was as a sound, it was in prisons. And I went into prison and I spoke to the warden. I ended up going down this road, like I ended up making my first official film which was an hour-long film called Voices from Inside Time inside this prison. And then I made a second film about this one woman I met in the prison. That was my first feature film. It was called The Nature of the Beast. And when 20 years later, remember I told you, like I came to LA and I tried to get this woman out of prison. It was about this woman called Bonnie Jean Forshaw, who was the first person in the state of Connecticut to shoot and kill a pregnant woman, which she did while defending herself against a man who was attacking her. And so I went ahead and made made the film. It went on PBS in the Tri-State area. And then I I felt like this was why I became a filmmaker. When I would leave the prison with the tape I of these women's stories, I felt like I was carrying some part of them to freedom. Like I was freeing their voices from inside yeah. time. And that's why I called that first film Voices from Inside Time. It was such a powerful feeling to, I couldn't help them really in any other way. But what I could do is make their lives worthwhile in that they knew that their experience and their truth would be shared and people would learn. And then people in turn would gain some understanding beyond these terrible two-dimensional representations of women in the media who were in prison. At that time, like the whole like Butch Dyke prisoner late night AMC movie was like all the rage. And so... I went into prison thinking that can't be all that it is. It was always like mothers, daughters, wives driving the getaway car, usually nonviolent. And they all told me about this one woman, Bonnie, who really saved their lives and was an angel. And she, she was the one I ended up making the nature of the beast about. And 20 years later, I contacted the warden to go and film her release because this journalist finally got to the governor of Connecticut with my movie. And the governor granted her clemency 20 years later. Wow. Took 20 years. And, uh, and I went with my son to greet her and film her release. And he said, there's no way you can film in the prison. And I, he said, you're lucky you got access back then because you never would get it today. We never give you access. But that's what kicked off my career. It married me to filmmaking because I was like, wow. So what if you know, to be able to drive back to the ivory tower that is Yale with this experience, with these new friends in my life and these new people in my life and and then to feel like I was helping and I was like I was practicing some kind of alchemy almost like taking their voices from outside prison walls so that's that really was it remarkable. I never, never could stop after that yeah. yeah that's a pretty cool story so I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all our guests here on the podcast and maybe it's a difficult question but what are two of your favorite scenes from any films of all time. One of them could be your own. I don't know. Is there like any, anything that sticks out? I'm sure there are so many things that stick out, but 
I think that, yeah, like we just talked about last flight home, but the scene with my sister and my father and me, which is called the Vidui, right? V-I-D-U-Y-I. That scene where my father, you mentioned it, how powerful it is. He is able to talk openly about the shame he's carrying about owing his friends money and losing his money and his fortune when he became disabled at yeah. 53 years old. That was a powerful that scene. scene. The light in that scene, the space in that scene, the, I feel like God is in that scene in a way. Like that is truly heaven sent that my father was able to do that, but also what that scene does for others and how it feels is just, it's my, like, just absolutely my favorite scene probably in any of my films. And then, of course, I speak up and try to make him feel better. And my sister scolds me. And that is always, and I left that in. Of course, I could have taken it out. I left it in because I thought it was such a powerful learning moment that you can't take people's shame away. You can't tell them, the reason you did that, Dad, is because you wanted to hold on to the stock so that it didn't get devalued for the employees. Like, you were trying to be a good guy. You doesn't matter. Dad has to come to his own conclusion. My sister scolds me, and it's hilarious. It takes the air out of the scene. It, it gives the scene this amazing dynamic because people are just absolutely riveted to the screen, and they're crying, and they're watching, and every day they decide. And then she... I speak up and then she says, this is not the exercise. Here's the exercise. <laughs> and not only is she my older sister, everybody, she's my, she's also, well, she's not my rabbi, but she's a rabbi. Yeah. She's like a very powerful, very well-respected leader in New York City, rabbi, right? That's New York, cool. uh, in Brooklyn. She's the rabbi of the biggest synagogue of Reformed Judaism in Brooklyn. And you can see me like shrink. I shrink three inches. I like, I like shrink. I hunch over and I like basically fall on the bed. When she's <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God, Oh my God. And I to, 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 to hurt that moment for my father in any way or for her to impede any progress or to speak out of turn. Like all of that was so horrifying to me in that moment. And it was my older sister scolding me also who's a rabbi. So it was just like, Whoa, right. You see me just snap and people just laugh and it really, it's a really funny moment, but also is, a great yeah. learning moment. So that's why I love yeah. that scene. And then other ones just coming to mind and back to the new Americans, like I love the big short and I love the style and the fact that they were able to just take something that is so dense and so complicated as, you know, the 2008-2009 real estate crash and break it down for people with Scarlett Johansson in a bathtub and break out into these definitions and Jenga and metaphors, these visual metaphors that McKay brought in. It's absolutely brilliant. And it was very inspirational to me just as a, not to copy it, but to just when I was thinking about why are all these other films falling short? And I just thought the big short to me was like, even when it came out, like really a great movie. It was a great movie. For that reason, sort of what you started at the beginning of this, you're like, I love your films. It, it educated so much, but I also was so entertained, you know? Absolutely. And I'm like, that's exactly why I love The Big Short, because it's so hilarious and entertaining. Is and there something. any scenes in particular that, that stick out from The Big Short that, um, that you, you, you think of? Gosh, there's so many movies where I that I love. So I'm just like I'm just pulling from. Oh, I know it's a tough mind. question. This is, but yeah, more, no, I think the less, with, le yeah, more of a scene. I'm curious about. Okay, and then and then I'd say otherwise. Going back to the New Americans, The Big Short, another film about finance that I think manages to pull off such an entertainment quotient with it, where it's just so cleverly done that the film has its own language. And it has its own editing style and it even breaks down these cutaways to like Margot Robbie in the bubble bath, defining some really complex financial terms. And then it cuts to, oh, gosh, yeah, I can't was, remember which chef, but someone in a kitchen. It's just, wow, I'd never seen that in a film before. I, and that, I really appreciated that. Um, and then also Christian Bale's performance overall, discovering, uh, like sort of figuring it yeah. out. 
yeah, while listening to heavy metal. Oh, and of course, Matthew McConaughey in Wolf of Wall Street. When he's pounding his chest. At that lunch. (laughs) That's incredible. That's another one that I think, again, it's when filmmakers go, you know what? I want to tell a story about this thing that could, could be as boring as watching paint dry or as over and overwhelming to people. And I'm going to try to make it entertaining and I'm going to try to really engage people. And, and the, both of those films, Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short, I think did that better than any film before. And hopefully our documentary will fall in that category, certainly as a doc on a really tough subject. I think, and looking at it in the context of the bigger situation in our culture of how we relay and consume information and what it does to our brains and how we self-organize and whether we are part of a hive mind or fall into the mob. I think yeah, time I think will you, tell. But I, I, I think you pulled it so, off, Andy, and I definitely, thank you. I definitely would implore people to watch The New Americans when thank it comes you. available. Thanks. It's playing some festivals coming up. If you're in Milwaukee, if you're in Dallas, if you're in Telluride, Colorado, it's coming to all those places in the next month. Nice. Um, that's next steps. And then we're working on, I think it was announced today that Republic Pictures acquired it for worldwide sale Excellent. to sell Paramount. So Congrats. Yeah. it's moving along. So it'll be with you soon, somehow, some way. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah. where could people follow along to tune in with like what you've got going on. Interloper film is my website and the impact campaign for last flight home is front and center right now. There people can host their own screenings. People can participate and help and if they want to. And so that's a great way to access it, but you can also see like our scheduled screenings coming up, the latest press. And I'm just on each or on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook, just my name. So Wonderful. that's a good way to go too. But yeah, thanks so much, Steph, for the conversation. Andy, thank you. Really grateful for your time and really enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. Good luck with the podcast. Thank, thanks so much. All right, Andy. <laughs> All right, so you can cut it off there. Yeah, I'm going to cut Do it you off want, there. Is there anything else you need? Are you good? Let me think here. I feel like we, we covered a lot of ground. I feel like we're going to edit out the Scarlett Johansson. Remember, I say it twice. I don't say it once. No, I I do remember that. I'm an editor. I have a background in editing, so don't worry. That's me too. I know you told me you're a scripted editor. By the way. No, not just scripted. scripted. Actually, I started off editing nonfiction sort of stuff, believe it or not. Okay. Which was really challenging. Use the word scripted because docs are also have narratives if they're any good. That's true. So I always like when I was at the Sundance Labs, I was like, I want everyone to join me in calling scripted film scripted. Yeah, I know there <laughs> Instead is. Instead of narrative or that's drama. That's true. That's true. There is, I know, a, a push lately. I've heard in recent years more people calling docs nonfiction films. I don't know if that's like, I don't know. That's just, fine. But narrative is just the problem with narrative is that docs have narrative. Listen, I'll, yeah, I, I like and how you say And the problem with drama is that docs should be dramatic. All my docs hopefully have narratives and are dramatic. Yeah. And yeah. something like New Americans, which is different than the usual film I make, still has, still takes you on a ride from 2008 to now. All right. Like You're getting a convert over here. I could start saying scripted films because narrative. Oh, right. Yeah. Narrative. It's not, I think. That uh, means story. Yeah. That infers that docs don't have a story. Oh, people go, people say, oh, is it a narrative or is it a doc or is it an? Is I it didn't a, realize is that was a, offensive it, to documentary filmmakers. It's not. It's just there's a lot. It's like of a personal preference. Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's a smart thing. It's. I'm just trying to. I'm just causing trouble, Zeph. I like it. Way, I look, listen. I'm doing what uh, I can. The, I actually <laughs> came from. I think I came from the music background before getting into film. Not like the kind of music quite that you had in your documentary. I came from more like punk rock, hardcore sort of stuff like CBGBs. Like there was like a whole thriving yeah, yeah. movement there that was like, it was, and it was oh, really yeah. a thing. Yeah. But that sort of punk oh, rock spirit know. is inside of me. Shepard's a really good friend of mine. You mentioned him. Oh, um, okay. My son is actually going to be interning for him this summer. And yeah. you can't find a bigger punk fan than Shepard. He's a huge. I punk used fan. to see that. So that's where like I used to, before he was like a name, like I used to see his Andre the giant. Has a oh, posse yeah. everywhere in New York City. Yeah, that dude back is in the 90s. He's a very, very cool man. He's a very good human being. 
He's a very, he's always trying to use his work for good. That's and awesome. he's just a very generous human being. Yeah. Did you um, so he actually designed the new American poster. Uh, have you, did you see it with the stars? Oh the yeah. Flag? Yeah. That looked great. Yeah. I should give you one. Oh I'm selling yeah. Them. I would We're love selling that. Them, yeah. But I'll give you one. Yeah. Um, that would be cool. Frame everything. And in- yeah, it's signed by me and Shepard. So you should. Oh yeah. Cool. It's yeah. Like worth money. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I'll do that. I'm just, all right. Jeff, thanks <laughs> all right, for your Andy, patience. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good all right, luck. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation podcast hosted by Zef Kota. Today's guest was on Dieter Mona. 